Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time around. On July 7, 2015, Ringo Starr will turn 75. To celebrate this milestone birthday, we're going to feature some of his highlights as a singer, songwriter, and drummer on tonight's Beatles multi-track meltdown. We're going to begin tonight's show with one of the heaviest songs the Beatles ever covered, Barrett Strong's first record for Barry Gordy's Tamba label, Money. By the time the Beatles stepped into EMI Studios on July 18, 1963, they had already performed Money for their failed Decca audition, recorded it for three BBC radio shows, and had been playing it as part of their live set since 1960. But this is truly the preeminent performance. This is arguably the most rocking song of the Beatles' early period. Starr's floor-time groove is hypnotic, and while the song is a cover, his playing set the stage for hard rock and heavy metal drummers for years to come. One only needs to compare the version with Pete Best on drums from the January 1st, 62 Decca audition with a version captured by Adrian Barber, lead guitarist of Cass and the Casanovas, that featured Ringo behind the kit during their Star Club residency nearly a year later on December 31st, 62, or their first recording of the song for the BBC on May 21st, 1963, for the May 25th broadcast of Saturday Club, to hear the differences and development. We'll follow with another rocker that was originally called The Thing, Little Richard's Long Tall Sally, recorded in one take. The Beatles were huge fans of Little Richard, and got to spend quite a bit of time with him, opening for the singer on a number of dates in the UK, and for a two-week stint in Hamburg, Germany. During these dates, the group also met his organist, Billy Preston, for the first time. Long Tall Sally features a stellar drum performance and was always a highlight of their live shows. It would be the final song performed at their last live show at Candlestick Park in San Francisco on August 29th, 
From their first album, the Beatles always tried to give Ringo a feature on each LP, and it happened on nearly every one, the Hard Day's Night and Let It Be LPs being the only ones not to have a Ringo song. That is if you count Flying as one of his, because his voice is so prominent, and he did get a writing credit. While Lennon and McCartney wrote I Want to Be Your Man for Star, his songs recorded for Please Please Me, The Long Tall Sally EP, Beatles for Sale, and Help would all be cover songs. After Help, his songs would either be originals crafted by Lennon and McCartney, or songs that Starr wrote himself. Had the rejected If You've Got Troubles been used on the Help LP instead of Act Naturally, Honey Don't from the Beatles for Sale album would have been his third and final cover song recorded for a Beatles project. Tonight, we'll hear the rejected song, focusing on Starr's drums and vocals. The 1966 Revolver LP was revolutionary in a number of ways, and the album had many firsts for the Beatles and for the rock world in general. It was also a first, and a last, for Ringo Starr, the only time that a Ringo vocal song was chosen as the A-side of a single. Yellow Submarine would prove to be so popular that in 1968 an animated film was made based on the song. McCartney elaborated on its origins in Barry Miles many years from now. I was laying in bed in the Asher's Garret, and there's a nice twilight zone just as you're drifting into sleep and as you wake from it. I always find it quite a comfortable zone. You're almost asleep, you've laid your burdens down for the day, and there's this little limbo land just before you slip into sleep. I remember thinking that a children's song would be quite a good idea, and I thought of images. And the color yellow came to me, and a submarine came to me, and I thought, well that's kind of nice, like a toy, very childish yellow submarine. I was thinking of it as a song for Ringo, which it eventually turned out to be, so I wrote it as not too rangy in the vocal. I just made up a little tune in my head, then started making a story, sort of an ancient mariner, telling the young kids where he lived, and how there'd been a place where he had a yellow submarine. I quite like children's things. I like children's minds and imagination. So it didn't seem uncool to me to have a pretty surreal idea that was also a children's idea. I thought also, with Ringo being so good with children, a knockabout uncle type, it might not be a bad idea for him to have a children's song, rather than a very serious song. He wasn't that keen on singing. After the basic track and lead and backing vocals were recorded on May 26, 1966, the group returned to the song on June 1st. 
Friends including Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, Marianne Faithful, and George's wife Patty added the sing-along chorus as well as atmospheric party sounds, and Rody Mal Evans hit a large marching band bass drum. Engineer Jeff Emmerich spoke of the session in his book Here, There, and Everywhere. The cupboard under the stairs in Studio 2 had everything. Chains, ship bells, handbells from wartime, tap-dancing mats, whistles, hooters, wind machines, thunderstorm machines, everything. The entire EMI collection of percussion instruments and sound effects boxes were strewn all over the studio, with people grabbing bells and whistles and gongs at random. To simulate the sound of a submerging, John grabbed a straw and began blowing bubbles into a glass. Fortunately, I was able to move a mic nearby in time to record it for posterity. EMI employees also got involved, as well as Beatles chauffeur Alf Bicknell. While many believe that a brass band was brought in to play the short two-bar instrumental, it is actually an early example of sampling. Jeff Emmerich explains. Engineer Phil McDonald was duly dispatched to fetch some records of Sousa marches, and after auditioning several of them, George Martin and Paul finally identified one that was suitable. It was in the same key as Yellow Submarine, and seemed to fit well enough. The problem here was one of copyright. In British law, if you use more than a few seconds of a recording on a commercial release, you had to get permission from the song's publisher, and then pay a negotiable royalty. George wasn't about to do either, so he told me to record the section on a clean piece of two-track tape and then chop it into pieces, toss the pieces in the air, and splice them back together. The end result should have been random, but somehow when I pieced it back together, it came back nearly the same way as it had been in the first place. No one could believe their ears. We were all thoroughly amazed. But by this point, it was very late at night, and we were running out of time and patience. So George had me simply swap over two of the pieces, we flew it into the multi-track master, being careful to fade it out quickly. According to Ian McDonald's book, Revolution in the Head, the recording was most likely a 78 RPM record of Le Rev Passé, a composition by George Crier and Charles Helmer from 1906. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines so we sailed unto the sun Till we found the sea of green And we lived beneath the waves In our yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine, yellow submarine we all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine, yellow submarine And our friends are all aboard Many more of them live next door And the band begins to play Yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine. We all live in a yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine. <laughs> As we live a life of ease Every one of us has all we need Sky of blue and sea of green In our yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine, yellow submarine we all live in a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine. We all live in a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine. Next up, two psychedelic songs from 1966, Rain and She Said, She Said. The two songs have a similar feel, and what many, including Starr, consider to be some of his best drum performances on record. The circular fills and his weaving through multiple time signatures on She Said, She Said shows a maturity that would continue to develop over the next few years. We'll follow with Strawberry Feels Forever, which was attempted on four separate occasions with quite different results. Eventually, Lennon decided that he liked the first half of the third version and the second half of the fourth and wanted them joined together. 
Although they were in different keys and tempos, producer George Martin and engineer Jeff Emmerich realized that if they sped up the third version and slowed down the fourth that they could in fact be edited together. Star's drumming on all versions was quite remarkable, but the final version would prove to be the perfect blend of two very different drumming styles. Next up, one of Star's most imitated drum grooves in the history of rock and roll, A Day in the Life. Interestingly, his entire drum part was overdubbed, being that he played bongos on the basic tracks. We'll end with what might be the first hip-hop drum track, the groove of I Am The Walrus. Besides the stellar groove, the drum fills are incredibly creative, crossing bar lines left and right, and laying the basis for one of the Beatles' most revered recordings. All of these mixes will focus on the drums, along with other vocals and instruments coming in at key sections.
we're back with the special Ringo Starr edition of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. On the July 14, 1964 BBC radio show Top Gear, Starr mentioned that he had written a song called Don't Pass Me By, a song he had played for the other Beatles when he joined the group in 62. However, it wouldn't be recorded until 1968 for the Beatles' White Album. Although the title seemed to be in place from the beginning, the tape labels referred to it as Ringo's Tune and This Is Some Friendly. In April of 69, the song debuted at number one in Denmark and stayed in the top ten for a month. The recording only features two Beatles, Ringo and Paul, and violinist Jack Fallon. We'll follow that with a Lennon composition that features quite an innovative drum part, Come Together. The song was originally written for Timothy Leary's campaign for governor, which ended when he was arrested for marijuana possession. Lennon was a big fan of the song, stating in a 1980 interview with David Sheff that it was a funky record. It's one of my favorite Beatle tracks, or one of my favorite Lennon tracks, let's say that. It's funky, it's bluesy, and I'm singing it pretty well. I like the sound of the record. You can dance to it. I'd buy it. A major part of that funkiness comes from the blend of McCartney's bass and Starr's drums. Rather than just playing a basic groove, Starr comes up with something more creative that many drummers today still play incorrectly when covering the song. We'll follow with a Starr composition from Abbey Road, Octopus's Garden. While on friend Peter Sellers' boat in Sardinia, Starr ordered fish and chips for lunch, but instead got squid. The boat's captain then told Starr about how octopuses travel along the seabed, picking up stones and shiny objects with which to build gardens, and Starr was inspired to write a song about it. He was further motivated by his desire to escape from the Beatles and their mounting troubles, stating that he had just wanted to be under the sea too. Harrison can be seen in Let It Be, helping out with some of the chord changes, always willing to give his friend the help that he rarely got from Lennon and McCartney. We'll close the show with another song that Harrison helped star with, It Don't Come Easy. The song reached number one in Canada and number four in both the U.S. and U.K. and is often thought of as his signature song. Harrison once again gave Starr full composer credit, although he had quite a bit to do with the writing of the song. Tonight we'll hear the live version from Harrison's 1971 concert for Bangladesh. Thank you. 
In the shade He'd let us in Knows where we've been In his octopus's garden In the shade I'd ask my friends To come and see An octopus's garden with me I'd like to be Under the sea 
in an octopus's garden in the shade. We would be warm below the storm in our little hideaway beneath the waves. Resting our head on the seabed in an octopus's garden near a cave. We would shout and swim about the coral that lies beneath the waves Oh what joy for every girl and boy Knowing they're happy and they're safe We would be so happy you and me No one there to tell us what to do I'd like to be
That's it for this week, Beatles fans. I'm Anthony Robostelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and I hope you've enjoyed this special Ringo Starr edition of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Tune in each week for deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, live tracks, solo cuts, and more. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the Facebook page for I Want to Tell You. You can also check out the Paperback Writer page on Facebook, where you can connect with Beatles authors from around the world. You can buy the book at Amazon.com or on the website, TheBeatlesIWantToTellYou.com. See you next week.